Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hey everyone, it's Joel Harris, editor of the podcast. This is just a quick editor's note to explain today's show just a little bit. Uh, this past week, Colby was a guest on the Fit Matters show with Greg Choate. They had a really interesting conversation and we thought it would be really cool to bring it to you guys as well. Greg agreed, and so without further ado, here's the show. Enjoy. And welcome back to Fit Matters. For those of you who are first time here, my name is Greg Choate. I run Santa Sports Science in Las Vegas, Nevada. I am a riding positioning specialist, strength and conditioning coach, USA cycling coach. And here on Fit Matters, we talk about all things fit related. Today, I am very lucky to have Colby Pierce with me. Colby Pierce is out of Boulder, Colorado, has a huge history in cycling. He's a riding uh, positioning specialist as well and coach and a whole lot more. So I'm going to bring Colby in here. And uh, good morning, Colby. Welcome along. Hi, Greg. Good morning. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, thanks for joining me, man. What's what's going on in Colorado? Mm. Well, it's uh, finally spring has sprung here, which took a while. You know, it's only uh, end of May. so But we had a brutal brutal uh winter just kind of kept dragging on i think winter's migrating like it used to start in you know november maybe october now it doesn't start until january like we couldn't cross-country ski at eldora which is our local area until after christmas which is crazy so why are you suggesting it's uh climate change might actually be a thing no 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 okay good i'd hate i'd hate for you to be one of those uh science people right um, so let's just tell everybody a little bit about you, Colby, a uh, huge history in cycling. Just give us the quick re- recap because, you know, uh, if we went through your Wikipedia page, we'd be here all day. Well, um, <laughs> thank you. That's generous. I think huge is relative, right? Uh, I always tell people, look, I'm not, I'm not Marion Voss or Fabian Cancellara, but <laughs> I found some success in bike racing here and there. And that was mostly through just um, my undying uh passion for the sport or I'll say my stubbornness that I wouldn't quit. Um, But I set the U S hour record in 1995 turned uh, we'll say air quotes pro in 96. That's U S pro style, which is basically driving around in a van and, and um, pumping up your own tires, which was great. And then I, I got a few paying pro contracts later in my career. And then um, in 2004, I made the U S Olympic team went to Athens and raced in the points race there. So won some national championships on the track along the way. Uh, worked at USA Cycling as track endurance coach for a while. Uh, got to work at SRM USA for about a year and a half, um, which was really instructive in learning uh, in terms of diving deep into power meters and all things power. And actually, Jonathan Vodders and I were, I think, the first guys in the U.S. to get power meters in about 1994 uh, after Greg Lamond. So I've been on power for a long time. So that's wow. Really instructive, uh, and then began coaching in about 2006, and then went and trained with Steve Hogg in uh, 2011, and became a bike fitter certified, Steve Hogg certified bike fitter or positioning specialist, as you would refer to it as, and um, and that's been quite a journey ever since. Been in that uh, the same office for about a decade, just recently moved offices and got an upgrade, got some natural light, which is very very good. So always, always a bonus. So, so yeah. uh, now you're based in, based in Boulder and yep. running your coaching and fitting from your new studio. Um, give yourself a bit of a plug. Whereabouts is that? Uh, it's in North Boulder uh, in a little shopping center above uh, one of the world's best coffee shops, Logan's Espresso. 
And um, I share that with Panache Cyclewear. So Don Powell runs Panache. He's a buddy of mine and he makes amazing stretchy pants and designs cool kits. So yeah, we've got our own studio there in, in North Boulder and we've got a, a plethora of bike shops around nearby, which are useful when you have to, you know, send someone your fully integrated uh, cabled up bike because there are some things that are just beyond my pay grade and dealing with uh, the intricacies of hidden DI2 wires and hydraulic cables as well above my pay grade. God bless hydraulic cabling, right? <laughs> Especially the the hidden stuff. It looks so yeah. cool, but man, it makes working on bikes really hard. Yeah, it, it sure does. Yeah. So to give some a uh, bit of background to this conversation, we decided to have Colby did a great po- – oh, let's give Colby another plug here. Colby has his own podcast as well. Um, mm. And you've been doing that for how long now, Colby? This is Cycling in Alignment. Um, yes. How long has that been running? Yeah, uh, we're up to episode 50, although wow. we recently transitioned away from the Fast Talk Labs platform into my own platform. And uh, the last couple of weeks that's been happening, we've been having some pretty challenging technical difficulties. <laughs> uh, I've got um, – an army of people helping me with that. And it's still been quite an uphill battle to get it all transferred. There's all this like behind the scenes stuff that happens with Apple and Spotify and how it gets published and pushed out. And I don't know anything about that, nor do I want to. So those guys are battling that. Uh, So I really appreciate their help with all that stuff. So we're in process of basically getting it transferred over. But I think my latest episode with Chris Balzer is now up on most of the servers this morning. I actually got an email saying that uh, my Spotify got reapproved. So it's the same podcast it was before, Cycling in Alignment, only now it's called Cycling in Alignment with Colby Pierce. So Because it wasn't with Colby Pierce before, it was with Colby Pierce. It was, right, right, yeah, with the other Colby Pierce, my evil uh, twin. Evil twin. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, those people who are into all the things that we talk about here, certainly go out and subscribe to Colby's podcast. It's another great resource he talks mm-hmm. about. Lots of amazing stuff, and and definitely the piece you just did with Chris Bolzer from Bike Fit Guru mm-hmm. uh, is is fantastic. Chris is a, a longtime colleague of mine, and uh, I thought you guys did a great job. It's always great to hear um, Chris chat about stuff as well. So big, yeah. big plaque there. Thank but you. Yeah. I really enjoyed my conversation big. with Chris. He's a smart dude, really smart. Yeah, that was sort of the evolution with Colby's podcast. Colby did a great podcast about how we pedal a bike and that's sort of been an ongoing in fact what was it called before hours well yeah there were two episodes 101 and 102 but yeah some i managed to talk about it for four hours believe it or not yeah so when somebody like colby can talk about pedaling for four hours it probably means there's a lot of nuance to the the mm-hmm. topic mm-hmm. and and so that probably prompted me to go back and and revisit some of the stuff and get uh colby on here on fit matters to talk about how we pedal a bike because it is something we hear a lot and i work a lot with uh indoor cycling people and there's a lot of um misinformation about how you pedal a bike Mm -hmm. and i think that's sort of leading people down a path and you know all things about the internet it's a wonderful thing and it's the most terrible thing ever invented Mm -hmm. um that we can find information very simply but then it's also very easy to put false information out there so today i want to unpack that a little bit about how we pedal a bike okay and it's sort of you know people always say it's as easy as riding a bike um turns out riding a bike is not that easy not Mm -hmm. only is it physically very difficult there's a whole lot of elements which you need to sort of consider and a lot of those elements actually happen below conscious thought 
pedaling a bike almost becomes an autonomic process, right? Mm-hmm. And and we have to sort of figure out how we do that. So let's let's go right back. What would you say, Colby, are the key elements if you had to break pedaling a bike down? Um, what would you say the key element or elements of pedaling a bike are? Yeah, that's a great place to start the conversation. Um, so I think that <clears throat> the thing to understand about pedaling a bike is that we have to look at it from a neurological perspective or the perspective of how the human being evolved and humans evolved to negotiate the surface of the earth, which means dealing with gravity and walking upright. And that's the key to it is that humans evolved to walk and run. That's the most fundamental physical thing that we're evolved to do or that we are tasked with doing. And so when we walk, that's a, that's a bipedal motion and it's got a lot of intricacy. And I think a lot of people maybe don't understand how much rotation is involved in walking in different joints. So when we apply that to a bicycle, we have to understand that all vertebrates have walking hardwired into their nervous system. And to understand what I mean by that, just consider the simple example of the chicken that gets its head cut off. It still runs across the road or the barnyard after you cut its head off. I know it's a gruesome example, but it illustrates the point that the programming, the neural programming or the motor engram is actually hardwired into the vertebra of the animal, into the nervous system of the animal. It doesn't require the head, the cerebellum to tell it to um, execute that left, right, left, right, repetitive motion and all the other parts that go with it. So when we ride a bike, it's a learned activity, but it's also enmeshed with the neurological activity of walking. And walking is fundamentally about pushing down, about making downforce against the surface of the earth. And, and we don't have to really go too deep, I don't think, to understand why I can make this case. Because you all you have to do is look at the anatomy of a human and examine how much muscle we have that's designed to extend the hip and extend the knee. And when you add all that up versus flex the, the knee or flex the hip, that is close the knee or close the hip. Mm-hmm. And when you kind of take muscles and make a list and put the extensors in one category and the flexors in the other, you can see that clearly the muscle distribution in humans has, without going down a philosophical rabbit hole of creationism or evolutionism, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the body was either designed or evolved. We'll just say evolved for the purposes of this discussion, right? The body evolved to, to do that. You can see that the body did evolve to push down. And so that's our first hiccup is when people get into their head, you can hear this at cocktail parties or at a bar, you know, like, Oh, you ride those pedals where you clip in, right? That's so you can pull up, right? That's a very <laughs> common, common, oh, the magical pulling up, the magical pulling up. Right. So when athletes, so this is rule number one, I'm almost telling you not what to do, but saying what not to do. Rule number one is don't yank up on the pedal at nine o'clock. You're just going to cause yourself a host of problems. And that has right. to do with the conflict that is inherent in the bipedal motion of pushing down, which is hardwired, which is a very, we'll say high level neurological priority, meaning Mm -hmm. um, the body places a lot of emphasis on the ability to walk. I mean, this is also, if you think about this, this is somewhat obvious in you hear stories about people getting car accidents and they have to learn how to walk and takes months. Walking is 
it's so primal and it's so fundamental that it's one of those things that's so easy to take for granted that when we can't do it, when you get plantar fasciitis or when you break a toe or break an ankle, I mean, think about how turned upside down your whole life is. Like, it's really hard to even right. get to work. It's hard to get down the stairs to get to eat your own breakfast or have coffee. So we take it for granted, right? We take it, movement for granted. And, it's, and yeah. it's, it's an interesting, when you talk about the evolutionary thing, one of the things I impress on, on my clients is that it's so, movement is hard, so hardwired into us that as a child, nobody ever had to, your parents didn't get you a crawling coach or your parents didn't get you a walking coach, right? You yeah, just, right. you figured it out because it's so deeply ingrained in our DNA Hopefully. that we are, we are meant to move. And I, the interesting yeah. thing when we talk about walking is we're creating this ground reaction force when we actually push down into the ground mm-hmm. and cycling is no different in that mechanism of we're essentially pushing the ground away from us in the same way where we're pushing the pedal almost away from us. Mm-hmm. And that's how we create maximal, maximal force. Well, Okay, so that opens up some really interesting points on that, um, on the point you just made there, Greg, which is two things I'll mention. One is I've also, I didn't mention this in my um, online Wikipedia <laughs> mouth that I gave you earlier, but I've also studied quite a bit of Paul Check's system. And uh, Paul Check, in case people aren't familiar, he's an exercise and conditioning coach, but also a holistic lifestyle coaching, runs an institute in San Diego. And now he's like fully, I mean, he's a guy who taught he can teach you everything from how to squat to how to use a Swiss ball in the gym. You see my Swiss ball whoops, in the background here. Camera's backwards, I think, for me anyway, where my brain is. So, yeah, Paul's a brilliant guy. Now he's, like, ascended and has become this spiritual shamanic dude and, and talks all about, like, <laughs> aliens and stuff. But anyway, um, which I just love his podcast. It's amazing. So, but Paul, uh, one of the things we've learned in some of Paul's classes that I'm still ongoing, this is an ongoing area of study for mine, for myself, is infant development. And so rewinding what you're saying about how we don't have a crawling coach, right? Paul talks quite a bit about infant development and how humans evolve to, you know, roll themselves over and scooch across the floor to get to their squeaky toy or whatever it is, or their, um, I don't know, kids, you know, they have those like mobile style things where kids, mm-hmm. want to go, you know, and then they learn to eventually uh, break eat, pull themselves up, and then they learn to squat to stand up, and then they learn gait. And gait is the final outcome of infant development. If it's normal, if it's in a normal pathway of natural development, of course, as people, we we do with infants so much what we do with everything else, which is we try to outsmart nature and interrupt the normal patterns of nature. This is this is such a theme I've been seeing in everything. And it's, it's one of those examples of like, once you see connect the dots, you see it in everything. Right. And the hubris of the human race sometimes just makes me want to smack ourselves upside the head. But anyway, so uh, you put uh, a perfect example is people, you know, they want their kid to be the successful kid. And they, so they kind of inevitably want them as parents to do things more quickly. So they put them in, I don't know what these things are called. It's like a ring um, with like a, a harness in it and you put the kid in from the top and then it supports their legs so that they can, you know, walk quicker yep. and do that, that you're doing that before they develop the proper musculature to support their own weight under their own, the squatting and the pulling themselves up and the falling sure. over 500 times or a thousand times in a row is part of that process. It's part of developing the neural pathways, right? 
And it's also part of developing the strength, the core strength and the, um, the, the back musculature to support their torso in space like that. So if you interrupt that process, because you, you have an older sibling who's holding the kid up by their arms all the time and trying to teach them to walk too quickly. Or if you put them in these weird devices, these baby bouncers and this thing, this ring thing where they walk around, you can really screw up a kid's infant development pathway. And it, that can show up later on in their adult exercise um, modalities in their cycling and their running and their throwing because they don't have the proper core control to right. keep the, the torso stable under those twisting forces, for example, or the hips stable. I right? don't even... I don't even think it's, well, no, it's as much about that muscular development as it is. So a colleague of mine has been doing, you know, similar research for a very long period of time. And when they look at brain activity, when patterns cross the center line of the brain, the brain activity is much higher than Mm -hmm. patterns that don't. And so there's this whole mechanism of uh, children learning, babies learning to crawl where we have that contralateral pattern. Yes. And and that has a very high neurological sort of uh, flow on or, or, or downstream. And so there's this whole discussion with uh, this colleague of mine that he is on his third child now, and we make the joke that the reason he keeps having children is so he can continue his research at home. <laughs> um, yeah. And he says that, Basically, when a child tries to stand up, he said it's almost better to push them back down to the ground and keep them crawling for the longest period they can because yeah. that will actually develop those cross-body mm-hmm. or neurologically high activation patterns mm-hmm. um, because there is some sort of discussion about really out the let's call it the math of how, how to stand up early in their developmental process um, mm-hmm. tend to be more cerebral. And then those people who spend more time crawling tend to be more coordinated. And so there's that perfect, wow. yeah, there's that perfect crossover of, you know, both the cerebral development and the coordination development gives us what we see in our world as the, the Tom Brady's and the Podjikars and the, these incredibly, um, not the Podjikars, probably a great example of coordination, but um, yeah, we see, yeah, (laughs) we see all the, all these sort of amazing physical specimens. Eric Hyden, great example, right? Mm -hmm. Incredible athlete went on to be a doctor just, you know, so we get both the best of both worlds, but there is some sort of basis there for the, for the dumb jock right? Mm-hmm. We have these stereotypes and they exist for a reason that, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's a really interesting theory, but it's certainly, you know, w- those patterns later in life become, I think, very, very useful to us. And, and uh, the only reason they've become less useful is because society's involved where there's less, um, uh, let's, let's call it, uh, barriers in our life than there was, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are less barriers, but also our world is more manicured. It's more air conditioned. Right. It's more, Correct. you know, comfort oriented. And and I think that's one of the biggest disservices that we've done to ourselves is insulating ourselves from nature so much. You know, so mm-hmm. much. The big picture theme for me is about returning to nature and and experiencing natural load. 
you know, experiencing right. cold, experiencing discomfort, uh, walking with bare feet on the earth. And I know we're a long way from your first question, which is how do you pedal a bike where the basic <laughs> and I haven't lost that point, but um, but I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we suffer from in in 2021 is uh, that human society is, we'll say, so insulated from our natural environment that then we are exposed to our natural environment or we're required to use our bodies in ways that are that engage with, uh, you know, lifting a cooler or uh, catching our child as they're going to fall off a step. And we're not capable of doing that, let alone, you know, when we're 86 and we're scooching out the front door to go grab our newspaper at the end of the block or whatever. I don't know if newspapers will be a thing that are delivered when I'm 86. Um, I kind of hope they still are in some ways. <laughs> uh, but maybe right. we can upgrade the news quality anyway without going down that rabbit hole. So but uh, Greg, I want to rewind quickly to one other point you made, if, if that's okay. And that is your discussion about, okay, we're talking about engaging with the surface of the earth and pushing down on the earth, right? Or driving downforce, uh, whether you're running or walking. And some people describe gait as a controlled forward fall. Mm -hmm. And um, one really important point that Paul drove home for me that I had figured out in my own training to a degree, but hadn't really crystallized. This is what I love about studying with Paul is like, I've got all these pieces that I've had in my head and he's gluing them together for me. And one is simply the difference between open chain and closed chain exercise, right? So just so the audience understands what I'm talking about, open chain exercise is when you push against an object and it moves away from you. Closed chain is when it doesn't. So the perfect example of that is you Go to do a back squat, you put the bar on your back and you drive the bar up. The floor doesn't move, you move, right? I mean, yeah, maybe if you're really strong, the earth moves a really, really, really <laughs> tiny amount. But we'll just say <laughs> that the earth stays where it is and you move away from the earth, right? But in cycling, the opposite is happening. Cycling is open chain because as you push on the pedal, it moves away from you. So, and uh, you and I had this discussion in our episode, Greg, about the difference between um, open chain and closed chain and also bipedal exercise or bilateral versus unilateral. Mm -hmm. And I thought um, that was also something I think is a really important point. There's so many cyclists in the gym who are deadlifting and squatting. And I'm not saying those are bad exercises to do, but if you're going to design a gym or strength program around your cycling, consider the fact that exactly this much of cycling is bilateral. And so in fact, as you pointed out, uh, when you break it down, there are not very many bilateral sports. And I had an interesting comment from a, one of our listeners on my pod who came back to the fast talk labs forum and wrote and said, Oh, you guys forgot about ski jumping during the takeoff, right? <laughs> which I think he's right. Um, the landing is, is unilateral, but anyway, right. the point is Cycling fundamentally is about pushing down with one leg in an open chain fashion and stabilizing the hips and shoulders during that movement. And if your infant development was interrupted, or if you've got really poor core uh, function or poor ability to stabilize the torso under that unilateral load, then you're going to have challenges. If you've got big asymmetries and the ability to drive with one leg versus the other, you've got asymmetries. Right. Um, and I also want to make a point that I think this is something I've been thinking a lot about. And last week I had the opportunity to do uh, film some content for the website for this new shoe project I'm working on. I think I've told you about this. It's called Lore, L-O-R-E. Yep. 
And the shoe is going to be amazing. And I think it's going to solve, to be blunt, I think it's going to solve a lot of problems that we have created for ourselves in the industry of cycling by mm. making cycling shoes that are, to be blunt, most cycling shoes in the market are garbage. Right. Just garbage. I'm going to just stand on a soapbox for a minute. Yeah. Um, so anyway, before we get down that rabbit hole, we should perhaps rewind to the fundamentals because I'm, yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, so we, we push down as, as fundamentals of pedaling a bike, right? We push down. Yep. You know, optimally, um, if you want to go fast, as hard as you possibly can on one pedal. Right. And we've all seen those diagrams of like at this degree in the clock face, this muscle is being activated yep. and, and th yep. this uses this muscle and this muscle. Mm -hmm. And uh, interestingly enough, you know, I, I take the approach like when, when one thing moves, everything moves. And I don't think there's that discussion of muscles being quote unquote on and off. Right. I, I think, you know, there's degrees of, of, uh, uh muscle excitement. Um, but th there's, it's the balance aspect of it, right? Which I think is one of the most important things. It's really funny when you put somebody on a bike who hasn't pedaled a bike or they're in a really bad position on their bike, it's very difficult for somebody to look fluid. Yeah. Because they can't transfer, whether it be neurologically, well, it is neurologically, you know, they can't get the brain to get the right muscle to move the right joint at the right time and sync all that up. Yeah. But I think that is something that is, is learned. So let's take a big step back. You grew up, in, you know, riding on the track and mm -hmm. going back to, and that's, you know, if we looked at the way you ride, um, I can guarantee and you and I have never ridden together, but I can guarantee you're super smooth on the bike because mm. riding a fixed gear and having to develop high cadence. But what was that process if you look back and how did you learn to pedal a bike so well? Right, 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 right. Well, okay, so that's a good question. Yeah, I did grow up riding the track. I grew up in, in Boulder and we had a track in Colorado Springs, a 333 concrete outdoor. So I raced, started racing that when I was, I don't know, 17 or something. Um, and the nice thing about riding a fixed gear on the track, especially in a small gear, or if you're doing, you know, motor pace type situations or in a big Peloton where you're moving very quickly is it will teach you to have that supple muscle. It'll teach. And what is, what do I mean by supple muscle? What I mean the is suplesse. Suplesse, right. Which is a <laughs> term in case you don't know, which means um, the ability to pedal with very high force, very quickly and smoothly. So you have that silky quick pedaling motion. If you want to find good examples of that, um, Look at the old uh, video. Who's the guy I'm thinking of who tried to break Eddie Merckx's hour record so many times and failed? Uh, was it Ole Ritter? Oh, really? Uh, Driver. Uh, there's a couple documentaries. I think it was Ole Ritter. I mean, so we've got uh, Bartoli. You look at some of these old school riders and they just have that silky pedaling motion, right? And there are riders in modern the modern peloton who have that for sure. And then there are those who don't. Um, <laughs> and look, fluid pedaling is part of cycling and it's, it's one skill that we have to make an effective rider. Sometimes you just have to smash Watts, so to speak, but there's always uh, a way to be mechanically less efficient on the bike or more efficient. Everyone falls in that range. The problem is cycling is a very forgiving sport in the sense that, especially if you're a beginning cyclist, you can have actually really, really poor mechanics on the bike, atrocious mechanics, and still go pretty fast in a local right 
you know, hill climb or 20 KTT because modern bikes are so efficient. Bikes are these marvelous machines that convert metabolic energy into mechanical energy and they do it really well. So you can have crappy technique and I can see it and you can see it, Greg, but people whose eyes aren't trained for that can't always see that. But I see riders murdering the pedals all the time, just ax chopping the pedals to death. And it's like, Ooh. Um, and when you do the math on how inefficient that is, it can be pretty, uh, jaw dropping. The problem is it's harder to see that in cycling unless you have a trained eye, whereas other sports bring that out really quickly running. If you have atrocious technique, you just get injured because it's very self-limiting running, right? It's why in cycling, you can ride with guys who are much faster than you because of the, the efficiency of the mechanism, but in running, you can't run with a guy. If you can't run a, a six minute and you run a, uh, you run a seven and a half, you ain't running with guys who are six minute guys. Yeah. 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 On cycling, you can draft and cheat and you can use gears and aerodynamics and hide and buy fancier wheels. Well, we don't, we don't call that cheating. We call that being old and smart. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Or young and having a big credit card or, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, these are the marvelous things about cycling, but you know, if you have atrocious technique in cross-country skate skiing, you just fall yeah. over constantly. If you have a really bad technique in swimming, you might drown. Like right. other sports have higher penalties, it seems, for bad technique. Sure. Um, cycling's more forgiving. So I think the the biomechanics of how we apply power is it, it's easy to overlook. Um, but I can see it. So when we're talking, so back to your question again about how I learned that, I think. Some of it was self-study. I saw photos of myself, like old school, you know, old style photos that my Mm -hmm. mom took of me racing my first national championships. And I went, man, my spine looks like a rainbow. That's not, I don't know why I knew that wasn't right, but it just was intuitively obvious to me. I was like, if we stand with good posture and our spine is straight, why would I ride a bike like this all the time in spinal flexion? That doesn't look right. And my neck's doing this. So I literally rode for a couple of weeks, just like trying to extend my spine on the bike until my posture corrected. Right. I had an instinct for that. And I'm not even sure where it was. It was just one of those universal moments like, dude, figure this out. And I did. Um, and that's still one of my teachings in my bike fitting today. To this day, you know, I really try not to have a, uh, a bike fit where I go in and I have a lot of preconceived notions about the outcome per se, because every athlete is an individual and you have to balance the uniqueness of the rider with what you're trying to accomplish. So I try not to go in with this platonic form of this is what everyone ought to look like on a bike. That said, there are two things on my checklist that I strive for. And one is when a rider's in the hoods, I like them to have the straightest spine possible. And two is right. I prefer that the pelvis is as stable as possible. The, the, the pelvis is your power center. It's your Dantian. It's where all the force is made. So if your pelvis is rocking and, and destroying, you know, uh, st- it's, it's super unstable and moving in all different planes, that's going to cause tension and problems in your hips, in your lumbar spine, your SI joint, your IT bands, your knees your Achilles. I mean, it depends on where it refers in the rider, you know, the musculature around your scapula, like your, your neck, it can even show up in hand numbness. Like you've seen it all, I'm sure. So the, the unstable pelvis, especially unilaterally unstable, more, you know, worse on one side, that's the common denominator. The outcome is the, the fractal, the potential of the human body to have things go different ways. 
and the unique fingerprints. Some people get, you know, knee paint, chronic knee stuff. Some people get chronic IT band stuff, whatever. They come in the door and you start to interpret. So. Well, I think, I think that comes back to, it's really interesting. So if you put somebody who's not a cyclist on a bike and get them to ride, what's the first thing they do? Put it in the biggest gear they can put it in. And, and you see people have just got their bike. They're out there just mashing that gear, just rolling it over. And yep. it's because I, I don't think we spend a lot of time teaching people how to ride bikes. And for me, the fundamental of that is cadence is king. You know, we learn the, and I, we equate it to something like handwriting, right? I can teach anybody, I can put a pen in your hand and you can write me a novel. But mm -hmm. if I put a pen in your hand and teach you penmanship and how to control that pen and how to hold the pen properly and yeah. how to make the movements, then all of a sudden you have this beautiful, you know, that becomes calligraphy, mm -hmm. that it just becomes a beautiful thing. And, and like you, you know, I grew up riding on the track. Um, yeah, and we were a 400 meter track, um, okay. back in, in Avondale in New Zealand, opposite the crown Lynn pottery, uh, pottery plant. And then I was lucky enough to, you know, in the same way, watch other riders yep. and, you know, guys like Jack Biddle in New Zealand and, and Graham Miller and Eric McKenzie. And I'm like, wow, those guys, like, how do I mimic that? And I was looking to emulate them, not because you know, Eric McKenzie rode in Europe as a pro, but because he just looked so good on the bike. Mm -hmm. And and it wasn't about, I want to be the fastest guy. Um, I Same sort of thing. You start to analyze. Maybe it's just the part of the way my brain works. I like to, to analyze why things are the way they are, yeah. more about the, the process or the craft than the outcome. Uh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I was teammates with Graham Miller, actually, on Shackley. And G-Man. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, wonder, I wonder where Graham Miller is. Graham Miller, where are you now? <laughs> he's, he's, I he's still in New Zealand, I believe, because I saw he was talking. We, we digress because it's all the people we know. Oh. I saw him chatting online with um, Brian Walton the other day. Oh, man. That's funny. And it, it was a, we had a photo of, gee, um, um, the 94 U.S. Pro Championship. Uh -huh. I, was that Lance won that, I think? And G-Man was on the podium. Yeah. He was on, he was in the number three spot on the podium and it was like, yeah. So he's a, he's a legend. He was, you know, he sort of inspired me to get into bike racing quite a bit and yep. was always just, uh, you know, obviously, as you know, having been his teammate, he was a hard taskmaster. He sure was. He was a, <laughs> he was a good dude. Um, okay. I got to have an instructional nugget moment here. I remember distinctly, <laughs> it was probably, so let's see, this is 99, 2000. So I was 20. Eight, I don't know, math, 26, something like that. And Graham was my teammate and he was much older on his way. You know, the golden age of his uh, competitive career, we'll say. <laughs> and I remember him showing me his training log one day and, and educating me on how little training he did. And some of that was based on his old man's strength, but also it was just Graham's. He was so clever and so experienced and had raced so much, had so much race experience under his belt. He just knew where to be at any given moment. And he had this ability to just clear his mind and focus and concentrate and constantly move up in the peloton. I remember watching multiple races where he would just be fourth wheel the entire race, like right. somehow, you know, just never an issue to stay at the front. Anyway, so there's a a good little story for uh, for people to understand old the essence of old man strength. But you know, one thing about the track that I'll say about that fluid pedaling and that suplex is track 
fixed gear riding is really good at developing. It kind of forces the envelope on suplex because at times you're undergeared. And so you're forced to pedal very, very, mm-hmm. very. And I agree with your statement. Cadence is king. I'll expand on that and say that one thing that frustrates the heck out of me is most power meters track power and power is comprised of two components. Of course, power is fundamentally speed times force. And when you're, when you're talking about power on a bike, that means you're pedaling in a circle. So speed is cadence and force is torque. Those are just uh, those two components translated into a circular format. And for some reason as coaches, and most power meters, not all, but most head units display power. And if you're a good coach, you're prescribing cadence. If you're a coach watching this and you're not prescribing cadence in your workouts, get it together, bro. Or right. <laughs> um, but it makes no sense, actually, that we commonly prescribe our intervals and maybe we recommend make recommendations based on power, which I don't actually agree with doing in most cases for a different reason. But uh, we also sometimes prescribe cadence, but nobody, a lot of riders don't even know what torque is. And it's right. two components. You know, it's the old Eddie Merckx story. Like Mr. Merckx, I'm a eight year old schoolboy in Belgium. And I want to know how to win my, you know, local time trial. Do I pedal a little gear quickly or a big gear slowly? And of course, Mr. Merckx responds, well, young man, you push a big gear quickly, right? <laughs> so you can either pedal faster or pedal harder, or you can do both to make more power. That's our triangle. And, but we're, when we look at these metrics, we only recommend, we only really acknowledge or track one of the two. It makes no sense at all. So when I worked for SRM, I pushed really hard to put a torque widget on the PC eight and he did that. And I think some other mm. torque widget on the Wahoo and the Garmin finally, but I don't think many coaches are using it anyway. Hmm. Track cycling is great to push the envelope on that fluid cadence and, and that fluid pedaling. But when you are riding a fixed gear, it doesn't actually make you the smoothest peddler. Remember when Jeff Broker did the original, probably the study that brought about the diagram you're referencing with the muscle activation, that was in uh, probably early 90s. He studied all the athletes at the U.S. Olympic Training Center, and they put EMG on their muscles, and they looked at their pedaling efficiency and torque efficiency for the first time ever. This is the first time anyone looked at these info. And everyone assumed that there were all these national team athletes at the Olympic training center. And everyone assumed that the team pursuiters and the trackies would be the smoothest peddlers. In fact, they found the opposite. The trackies were the choppiest peddlers and the mountain bikers were the smoothest. And they eventually kind of reverse engineered why mountain bikers have a smoother stroke because when you're on a 24% grade Jeep road with a bunch of baby heads and loose stuff, you have to apply pedal stroke you apply torque very evenly throughout evenly deep traction otherwise yeah if you're too punchy the wheel will skip and you lose traction then you dabble and you have to walk Mm -hmm. a track cyclist is the opposite and this is why this is something i think people from florida don't necessarily know (laughs) when you live in a really flat place there are two things that camouflage dead spots in your pedal stroke and a dead spot is when you have a choppy pedal stroke and your axe murdering the pedals and one is flat terrain. Flat terrain camouflages dead spots. Why? Because you have more inertia. Inertia works with you. You don't have more inertia. You have the same amount of inertia, but inertia works with you. So once you get the thing going, the thing being you and your bike and your bottles and all the other phones and crap you got on you, every all that momentum is going down the road, then 
you you have all that inertia moving you forward and an object in motion tends to stay in motion. So you can just, then you can start jabbing at the pebbles randomly and inertia will keep things going. You won't notice. The second thing that camouflages dead spots is a fixed gear. You can right. have a pretty jabby pedal stroke and the, the fixed gear will force you through the dead spots. It will help you through the dead spots. The, jab, the pedal stroke has to be jabby, but at the same time, what a, what a fixed gear teaches you is we have this reflex, right, where the hamstring will break to prevent an overextension, a hyperextension. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, so when you first pedal really, really quickly, it can make riders incredibly sore because the hamstring has this neurological reflex. You pedal so fast and you push down hard, the hamstring fires to keep that mechanism from it's, it's basically the body protecting you from, you know, your kneecap popping off pretty much. Right. And so the hamstring will fire. And after time, it figures out like, oh, we're going to learn this motion. I can pedal quickly and I can generate this force with a lot of speed and torque and the hamstring can relax. And then you get that flutter stroke where you can make a lot of force very quickly. Sorry, I've been talking a lot. No, no, that that's exactly it because that's, that's the, um, you know, the, the, the key is, as you understand on the track and uh, on the road, it works the same is being able to make that, those transitions of your cadence to affect your position in the group or your position on the road or the track is being able to do it smoothly is what makes a rider, you know, someone like, you know, Graham Miller, or there's plenty of examples of people like him to be able mm. to just move around the Peloton with cunning and fluidity and it's kind of like why, you know, older, more old man strength is part of it, but old man cunning and knowing where to put yourself and being able to put yourself there at the right times is really what makes a difference on, you know, in, in, a, in a racing or, or a spirited group ride environment. Mm -hmm. So that takes, takes us to this. So if we understand in the pedaling mechanic that it's about pushing down, there's no pulling up because we're talking that basically offsets the the balance of the pelvis, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, and trying to be smooth is, is key. So what sort of advice would you give to people about ways to improve their pedal stroke or to learn to, to pedal the bike in, in a better manner? Great. Uh, so my key points are one, I would like people to pedal with a flat or nearly flat foot for most of the stroke. And so when, and, and this is a hard one for people to feel. So if you're not sure what you're doing with your foot, a lot of people are surprised when I show them video <laughs> um, of themselves. They go, Oh, I didn't realize they I was look like prima ballerinas on the Yeah. Yeah. Pedaling very slow down, right. <laughs> but in, you know, it, everyone owns a phone that can, that can video themselves in slow-mo. So this is pretty simple. Put your bike on the trainer, make it flat or close to flat, close to level, uh, four foot level through the axles. Get your phone on a bookcase, press go in slow-mo, get the angle right. That takes about five or 10 minutes of tinkering and a few trial runs to make sure you're in the frame and all that. And to put the phone, you know, 90 degrees straight on side shot from you. And this is just 101. And you can learn about yourself and your own pedal stroke and get 30 seconds of footage of yourself pedaling in slow-mo on the trainer. And I'd say, you know, we want some force applied to the pedal. So let's just say zone three or tempo or, you know, a click below threshold is good. And just look at how you're pedaling. And there's a rule you can apply here. If you want to do some self-analysis, this is the rule is 
joint angle de determines or dictates muscle function. So we don't have to put an EMG on you. You don't have to have this detailed understanding of anatomy. You can see what muscles are firing based on what the ankle's doing and what the knee's doing. Right. Pretty simple. And I would say it's safe to say that most people aesthetically think that the, sh the saddle should be higher than it actually ought to be. Uh, and I'm not sure why that is. I think to oh, I've got honest, a theory on that one. You have a theory? I, well, I'll throw this one out there and then I'd love to hear your theory. But I think when it comes to especially, I'm just going to throw every all guy bike fitters under the bus. When you see a woman <laughs> on a bike, there is a, a societal programming that women should have their toes down. I think this is a high heeled, like it's sexist straight up. I, I think men have a bias to see women riding with their toe down at the bottom of the stroke because they've been programmed that hot chicks walk around in high heels and about. <laughs> and just for the record, if you are a woman and you're wearing high heels, you are destroying your function. You are ruining the length of your Achilles, your calves, you're tipping your pelvis into anterior tilt. You're ruining your abdominal function. And if you're a guy and you're promoting this, sorry, people, this is 2021. Like there are a lot of ways to appreciate the beauty of the human body. Right. So, I'll say that. I'd love to hear your theory on why it is that, why are we biased towards having a saddle high? Why does that look cool? So my, my thought process behind this is, is we have evolved to stand upright and we've evolved to stand upright pretty much at all costs. We, we are, we're designed to move. We, we like being in this extended hip, extended knee position. And we spend a lot of our lives there, apart from those people who lounge on the couch eating Doritos or sitting in cars and stuff like that. But because we're pre-programmed to move, we favor that hip extension, knee extension. So, and the big difference between uh, move, walking and running and being on a bike is in walking and running, our center of mass passes over the point of contact with our environment. And, and certainly the progression of, of a series of controlled falls, which is the clinical definition of, of, of walking, is running in which right. we move to triple extension, right? Triple extension, extension of the ankle, extension of the knee, extension of the hip. So we tend to neurologically yes. favor that extended hip, extended knee position. And that's why I believe most people get on a bike and they're just like, it feels better or it feels more familiar to me with uh, extended hip, extended knee. Yes. But the way in which we generate power on a bicycle is completely different because cycling is essentially a hip dominant, you know, yes. move, movement where we're driving power out of the hip. And you and I had this discussion once before is, you know, hip extension is, is more like, you know, those people who lift weight in the gym, it's more like the deadlifting mechanic mm -hmm. and, and running is more like a squatting mechanic, which is more knee in, involvement. And I can always deadlift way more than I can squat. So this whole displacement of the hips behind the point of contact, uh, yeah. which is where your foot is on the on the pedal, mm. and the big thing, yeah, you know, that circles back again to that pelvic discussion, is that your cranks are not going to bend, um, your legs are infinitely more powerful than your pelvic stability. Yeah. The goal is finding that interaction where they work together. And there's that limiting factor where you're putting enough force down the least because typically the limiter will be the pelvic stability. Yeah. And like I've got one, one client and it's a female. She's very strong, Kona, Kona you know, competitor in, in triathlon. And she suffers from 
saddle sores on the bike because she's so strong on the bike. Her legs push her pelvis out of the way all the time. Right. And it doesn't matter what we do with a positional standpoint. She just tends to wiggle on the saddle. Mm-hmm. And so the prescription is, you know, obviously you, you get this all the time. People coming back to you, they've been positioned on their bike and they're like, oh, there's something wrong with my fit because I'm feeling this muscle or I'm doing this. And we're like, well, chances are there's not, it's not the position, it's your function. And, and so she just pushes her pelvis out of the way every time. And so the, the solution was to create yeah. more pelvic stability than, and I won't use that C word, the core. Um, right. so we're talking about pelvic stability. Um, That's more, right. Yeah. <laughs> that um, so, you know, that whole thing about, we just tend to favor being more extended and mm-hmm. everybody gets on the bike and they just, you know, and then there's, you know, you can go on to the interwebs and find people who have large audiences um, saying, oh, this is how you, you know, you should almost be extended at your knee when you're pedaling a bike. Well, yeah, if you want to get IT problems or stuff like that. So yeah. there's yeah. just so much bad information out there. Yeah, you're. that's a really good way to look at it. Um, I would say this is a blanket way to sum that up. Seated cycling is not triple extension. Yeah. It's not. And if you think it is, you're not understanding the major limitation there is pelvic stability. As soon as you make seated cycling triple extension, you destroy pelvic stability. And you do also, you shift the torque focus from the hip to the knee and a blend of, and cycling is about sustainability. It's about sustainable effort over a long period of time. It's a road race of 60 miles, 80 miles, you know, 200 K, whatever. It's a criterium of one hour with, I mean, you look at like the Redlands criterium, for example, staple, you know, race in the U S right. I don't know, nine corners in that thing or something, (laughs) 10 corners. And basically out of every corner is a maximal sprint or a, a, it's a sub maximal sprint, but it's a heavily glycolytic sprint. It's constant glycolytic load. That's a lot of force. By the end of that race, you've got, you know, 40, 50 minutes above threshold of accumulated time, you know, in eight second bursts, 10 second bursts, 30 second bursts. So like cycling, seated cycling is not triple extension. Standing cycling is triple extension. It is. So cycling has some of both and training both can be useful and we need to understand the difference, but the foot should not be plantar flexing at the bottom of the pedal stroke. When you're seated. When you're seated. Correct. Thank you. Um, if it is your saddle's too high. So when we raise the saddle, usually there are different strategies the athlete will employ subconsciously to deal with that higher saddle height. In my experience, Greg, and I'd love to hear if you agree or disagree with this. The first thing the body does is to tend to protect that knee. It protects that relationship of the patella. So the first thing typically we see is, is plantar flexing at the bottom of the stroke. So back to our video, when you slow mo yourself, if your foot is at three o'clock and it is horizontal or very close to horizontal, you know, maybe a little bit toe down or, you know, five, 10 degrees, that's pretty normal in my experience. But when you mm-hmm. go down to five thirty or six, if you have to plant our flex and drop that toe down, that's a pretty solid sign that your saddle is higher than it needs to be at that moment. Now, whether that's hip tightness, hamstring tightness, uh, your saddle's just way too high, your cleats are in the wrong place. Then you get down the bike fitting wormhole. There are a bunch of things that can result in that. But suffice it to say that at this moment, your saddle's higher than it ought to be. So 
Um, when we plant our flex at the bottom, that's our first strategy. Our second strategy is the hip will drop at the top of the stroke to protect the knee. And when you exhaust both of those potentials, then the knee will extend more and more. And you can go through shots of lots of pro triathletes, especially women. Right. And, and it, there's an astounding number of shots out there where people, the riders happen to be at bottom dead center or very close and they got the photo. Mm-hmm. literally knee is almost 100% extended and they are plantar flex to the bottom. So right. what we're doing with the, and of course the saddle slammed forward to some preposterous degree. <laughs> what we're doing in this case is we're trying to make cycling running. That's what, that's what triathlon fit has done. It's, it's migrated towards trying to make cycling running. And I'm just going to tell you cycling is not running. It well, never so- will be running. So there's a very interesting question. You and I see the same thing with triathletes and it's very, it's a, that's a very, let's just say that's a hard nut to crack from the population standpoint yeah. of, of triathletes. But just think of the physiological cost of pedaling bikes with this very forward saddle position, plantar flex, knee close to extension imagine the cost that's having on your ability to run and and this is the argument they're like well i still run a you know a 250 Mm -hmm. or i still run you know 530s out of t2 Mm -hmm. but we can't do a double blind on that right i know (laughs) i i just double blind yeah i just know just through years and years of seeing repetitions and positions on bikes and runners that I think a lot of these triathletes are leaving stuff on the table as far as their runners concerned. Yeah. By using these positions on the bike, trying to make cycling look more like running. The challenge there is uh, you would, it would require a, pretty extensive deconstruction and rebuilding of the function of the triathlete for them to adapt properly to a cycling position. And look, I'm not a triathlon on on coach and I don't, I I don't want to be a triathlon coach, but if I were to be a triathlon coach, my methodology would be, and I I recognize the limitations of what I don't know. I've, I've worked with these athletes for years. So I willingly recognize that I'm hypothesizing on this, but my method would be study the best swimmers in the world, the best technically proficient swimmers in the world and swimming mm-hmm. such a technical sport. It has to be because yes. we're, we're making forward momentum through that viscous fluid and we have to be so dialed. But the reality is all sports are technically demanding. I would study the best swimmers in the world and have my athlete train like that swimmer. I would educate them and I would drill them on technique to where they got as close as we could to that model. I would do the same for running and the same for cycling. Mm-hmm. And then I would order those workouts, or I guess the triathlon term is brick them, such <laughs> that you could do them back to back and still perform technically in each of those elements. That is the end goal as a coach for me, as a hypo- hypothetical imaginary triathlon coach. And I don't, and, and look, you know, I realize again, I'm, I'm criticizing effectively what other triathlon coaches do in their method. I'm quite certain there are a lot of them who are, if they're watching this are just like, you're an idiot. I'm cool with that. Um, but I don't think we ought to try to turn cycling into running philosophically. That will never make sense to me, or I'll say it doesn't right now. 
uh, very strong convictions loosely held. That's my philosophy on this stuff. So, well, I think that sort of comes back to because a lot of the time, as a positioning specialist for the bike, we work to deload the the calf complex. You know, we we work to deload anything from the knee down as much as we can, right? Because mm. the contribution to the pedaling mechanic of the gastroc and the soleus, those muscles in the calf, is very, very low as a percentage. We don't generate a lot of our force out of there because we're not plantar flexing, dorsal flexing the foot through the pedaling stroke. Well, but okay. Those muscles are highly used in running, and it's really, and they're also very high oxygen consumers from a fuel standpoint. Because we need um, triple extension. Correct. And right. so we, we're trying to deload that mechanism to quote unquote protect it as much as we can mm. or keep its reserves for the run because it's, you know, obviously, you know, it's a it's part of the run mechanic. So okay, that's a great point. That takes me right to the lore shoe and the and the mechanism of modern shoes. Mm -hmm. I I believe that most modern cycling shoes, I'll say we'll just say all, because <laughs> nearly all of them do this. But when you put the foot, first of all, there's the old school problem of putting the axle too far under the first metatarsal. Right. And when you do that, you make the four, the forefoot, the foot so forefoot dominant, right? Um, if I use my hand as my foot model here and this being my first knuckle, that's my first metatarsal. So if I put the axle right under there, what we're doing is we're introducing so much instability in the, in right. the foot complex. And we offset that by using a rigid lever, a cycling shoe, of course. Um, and remember all prosthetic devices weaken the body, including a rigid cycling shoe, which is one of the reasons we have so much dysfunction in our cyclists. So just one, one point there, when you yeah. say we, we use a stiff cycling shoe as a way to try and create st stability, mm -hmm. but because that, that energy has to go somewhere, right? So in some respect, the stiff cycling shoe is actually putting more load on the stabilization requirement of the ankle. Yeah, yeah, because it's weakening the arch and the and the muscles in the foot around the to stabilize the calcaneus and navicular and relationship. The talus, right? Yeah, the subtalar neutral. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Joint, right. right, yes. So it's that that's that whole discussion. Are stiffer shoes better, right. or are they worse? Do they help us or do ah, they heat us? This, this is the point. This is exactly <laughs> the point. So when we make a stiff shoe and we artificially induce a crude windless mechanism because we have a shoe with toe spring and mm -hmm. heel rise, right? So you look at any modern cycling shoe, some worse than others, uh, all of them, they don't allow the foot to sit flat. They have toe spring, which pushes the toes up into a bit of dorsiflexion. And this is really, in my opinion, a holdover from 1906. I don't know. Or running. A million years ago or running maybe perhaps um but i think it's a crude attempt at at activating the windless mechanism and the windless mechanism is when you raise the first ray the great toe and it it pulls uh puts tension in the arch and it's supposed to stabilize the foot and roll you slightly uh into a more neutral position and offset pronation by applying tension to the plantar fascia that's fundamentally what the windless mechanism does and that has an impact up the chain. It's sort of replicating the push-off phase of gait when you heel strike and then midfoot and then you push off, the toe stays on the ground and the heel lifts and that engages that windless mechanism and puts tension under the midfoot 
and that, and uh, supposedly if your foot's working, you know, properly, you supposedly will get to some sort of approximation of sub tail or neutral during the phase of that gate. And that allows you to push off effectively. Is that fair? That, that, that? That, that's the, that's the design of how the windless mechanism works in gate. Exactly. So, and we're not in gate in cycle. No, we're not. Well, okay. So let's break that down. So gate, if we look at gate as those three parts, the phase, the rear foot strike, the midfoot mm -hmm. roll off phase where the, the plantar fascia has tension and then the push off, we'll say phase of gate. I know there's different ways to break that down, but just conceptually. So we're on the same page. You might argue that cycling is sort of like the push off phase frozen in time. There's no, there's certainly no heel strike. Right. And there's no midfoot really because you've got this rigid surface underneath and there's no chance for the arch to be active, which is why then we get on a discussion of, do we have arch support in cycling shoes? If so how much? Is it a corrective rigid structure or is it a proprioceptive structure like a GA right. foot bed? So, and then we have the forefoot phase. And since the axle's somewhere around between the first and fifth metatarsal, we we could say that cycling is sort of like the, the forefoot phase of gait uh, the push-off phase, um, kind of repeated over and over again. And I think that is where we get in trouble neurologically. Now I've spoken with Steve about this, Steve Hogg, my, my fit trainer, and he doesn't necessarily agree that cycling is the forefoot, the, the push-off phase trapped in time, but I can't see how it isn't. It's, so anyway, it, you know, I'm just letting you know, like Steve doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily on the same page of this, but I, from my perspective, it, it sort of has to be that way. And so our challenge then is if we're use a cycling shoe that has this toe spring and this heel rise, and I've already spoken about how raising the heel causes all these complications. It shuts oh, yeah. down the activation of the calves, the gastroc and soleus, and it shortens the Achilles, right? Mm -hmm. So when we do that, we sort of introduce this, this um, forefoot phase and it's sort of like it stunts gait. I would argue it, it interrupts that vertebrate cycle of that firing of the left, right, the heel strike, midfoot push off that is so ingrained in us as vertebrates. It, it disrupts that neurological pattern. And I think my theory is that that in combination with the curved sole is a big, big part of why we see so much dysfunction in cycling and recently riding in the prototype of the lower shoe this has really driven this home for me. And the foundation of the lower shoe is just to unpack it. So people know what the heck I'm talking about. Uh, the lower shoe is, it's a, it's a 3d molded carbon fiber custom cycling shoe based on a high res scan of your foot. And by high resolution scan of your foot, I don't just mean the sole of your foot. Like I'm going to throw my foot up here just as an example. I don't just mean the sole of your foot. Like we see with so many, you know, footbeds and orthotics out there where they scan the bottom. We're talking about the uh, entire top side of the foot, the ankle, all of it. It's a 3D scan from basically here down. So it's going to be completely custom made and printed, 3D printed. We only had the technology to 3D print in carbon like yesterday, basically. So this thing is super cutting edge. It requires three robotic arms at once, like going in circles. It's like straight up Tron stuff to make the shoe. So it's going to be amazing. But the key point I'm getting at is this shoe will be based on a completely flat platform. There will be no toe spring, no heel rise. And when you allow the, the foot to engage with the surface of the sole with that, um, on that 
that will say potentiation of uninterrupted natural posture as though you were engaging on a flatter portion of the surface of the earth, you cease recruiting so much of your pedaling motion through the forefoot, which automatically biases you towards uh, posterior or excuse me, anterior muscle engagement, right? Cyclists are already challenged to engage mm-hmm. posterior chain because we've got this axle near the ball of the foot. And that's perceptively, even though it's a hinge and we've got this rigid shoe, we're already going to have a bias towards quad dominance. So that's why it's doubly important to make sure a saddle offset is there and we're engaging the posterior chain, but it's kind of uphill. And then you do this with the toes and you're increasing that quad dominance because you're you're favoring the forefoot aspect, the push-off phase of gait. So we're like really doubly ice skating uphill on this. So no wonder we're seeing all this dysfunction in cycling. So when we flatten the foot and we allow it to engage fully, we stop pedaling with the forefoot and we start pedaling more with the midfoot, which goes to, this is a perfect Well, that point. sort of brings in that whole discussion about rearward cleat placement. Right. And midfoot cleat placement. So this is- right. <laughs> You got right? it. Isn't this funny? Like I have this on my desk. So- yeah. This book, Gary Ward, talks about driving through the midfoot. He's got all these great exercises to help athletes drive through the midfoot, meaning right. kind of a more balanced drive from, you know, we might say the, the metatarsals and the calcaneus and right. driving through the midfoot as a stronger lever and a proprioceptive um, receptacle. That's not the right word, but a proprioceptive device that can feel the ground more like the foot ought to drive when you're running on flat ground or when you go to squat or deadlift or lunge. Well, it just makes, it makes more sense when you look at the, sh- the longitudinal arch in the foot. So this yeah. is the, 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 which is, you know, going from the rear of the foot to the front of the foot, that you want for that longitudinal arch to have the most even distribution of force through it. When you apply downward force through the, through the foot. Yes. The, the the cleat placement, you want it as close to the center of that longitudinal arch as you possibly can. And and then and then the mechanism of the arch will be the most stable. Um, when you start offsetting that pressure point, then you're actually asking forces to be distributed less evenly uh, yeah. through that longitudinal arch. Well, I'll make a big statement here. I think the lower shoe solves some of that problem because as we move the, I know I don't want to turn this into a lure shoe commercial. Sorry, I hope you're not upset with me for this. But, but I, I, I mean, shoes is, has been a massive uphill challenge for me my entire career, and I made progress bit by bit. And I've literally gone to the ends of the earth to look for this. And this is the first product I've seen that really addresses a lot of these concerns. I really believe in it for that reason. So when what we're thinking about is this. Go back to Gary Ward and his concept of thinking about the foot mm-hmm. like a tripod, right? And so we're talking about the fifth the first metatarsal, sorry, the fifth and the center of the calcaneus and that even pressure distribution between those three points, that, that Correct. triangle. And what you're saying is the axle ought to be in the center of that triangle, which is, which is very reasonable. I think part of the reason we have that perception is because conventional shoes are so screwed up and because yeah. we're not yeah. given that flat surface. And then what we're doing is because of that curved baseline, which you cannot escape in modern shoes, even if we're talking about a Bond, which is the next best thing, is still miles from where it should be. Like Bond is a great product, but it is miles from where it should be still or kilometers to right. use relevant units. And 
So when we have that curved surface, what we do is we accommodate that curved surface with all these contraptions, all these arches and all these heel, uh, you know, cups and all these wedges we've got in the shoe wedges and cleat wedges and heel wedges and all these devices and all this duct tape under the arch and trying to get you to not drop the hip on one side and the other. And when we have, when we give someone a flat platform and the axle is just there and we can drive from the midfoot, the axle placement, I will argue, and I could be wrong on this because I've got prototypes of these shoes. I haven't had that much opportunity to play with it yet, but I will argue the axle placement becomes less relevant in terms of uh, determining muscle recruitment and more about the lever length. And then it's about the lever length for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, when I was, when I was living in Beijing, I mean, I saw a lot of people riding bikes without clips, <laughs> you know, at, yeah. at, at, at the, at the cycling events, we'd see people with, you know, clipped shoes on, but most of the people riding China bikes in China don't have clipped shoes. And, right. and you look at where they put, you know, look at a kid when he gets on a bike, look at people, where, without does, flat yeah. where does your foot go? They, you just neurologically, you find that position because we are very good at finding the efficiencies in our own bodies. Yeah. 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 And to that end, I did do a podcast with a guy named James Wilson. I don't know if you followed his stuff. Uh, Jack, so, well, so I take, I'll take f- full credit for this. James said a, I did a podcast with James and oh, I've known okay. him for many, many years. And he said it was a discussion which me, with me at a, at a strength and conditioning, a functional movement course actually in California, which prompted him to make the catalyst pedal. Perfect. Awesome. There you go. Right. So yeah. pedal is, it's a pedal that's very long, not very wide, and it allows the calcaneus and the metatarsals to rest on it. So you get the full engagement. You, you give a platform for the entire longitudinal arch. Right. The catalyst pedal is the poor man's solution to the lower shoe, basically. That's <laughs> brilliant. So I didn't yeah. I know the origins of that project were for conversations with you, but I'm not surprised to hear it, honestly. So good on you, Greg. Go, yeah, it's pretty funny. We're having this discussion. He's like, yeah, we had a conversation. That's what made me think. And I'm like, okay. That's <laughs> cool. Where's my, where's my share? <laughs> no, yeah, I've known James for a long time. Super good guy. And it's just the process, right? Because I think yeah. when we spend so much time in cycling, we just become very myopic. And, and we just looking outside is why I always say I, I'm a, yeah, I'm a movement specialist. I can look at movement across. It doesn't matter what it is. It's why I've worked, you know, with tennis players and UFC fighters and motocross riders and, and cyclists mm-hmm. all at the professional level because yeah. bad movement is really recognizable when you know what you're looking for. And what I love about that statement is to rewind to what you were saying earlier. It's like you, you study cycling, you study movement, you look at a certain cyclist, you just see it's almost ineffable, right? When you really study the sport, I think you have to have a little bit of an artist's eye. I'll say, I'm going to get a bit esoteric here for our, mm-hmm. our profession fitters. Um, but you just see movement and it looks natural. It looks fluid. It, you see suplex, but you also see strength in that suplex, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. just, flutter it's flutter with force and you then you reverse engineer you know this has been my path as a coach also like i've been in the sport for 35 years so i've had all these trial and errors and end of ones of like oh man that was a disaster i tried to train really hard for that race and totally destroyed myself or ooh, what happened there i had this magic moment i actually won a bike race Woo! what did i do right and trying to reverse engineer now i'm learning the science behind that 
There's a great, it just reminds me, I was at a conference and um, uh, Dana Kestor's coach, um, Terence Mann was the guy. And it was this great conference. I think it was in, it was in Colorado. It was the World Altitude Training Summit. And there was a mix of scientists and coaches there. And Terence Mann said this great thing after numerous scientists had presented. Yeah. He, He said, don't tell us as coaches how to coach our athletes because it's our athletes who've been winning world championships and gold medals. Mm-hmm. Tell us why what we've been doing has, is working so yeah. we can duplicate it because we can't figure out. We just know that what we do seems to work. Right. But if, if the scientists can come back and go, well, what, this is why what you did worked. Yes. Yeah. And isn't that, isn't that beautiful? It's the same thing with bike fitting. You just see an athlete that looks like they're making good power. They're sitting with good weight distribution. You can tell that they're efficient. They're not, you know, wrestling with the bars. They're not wrestling with the bike under load. They're all those things come together. And it's, it's even, and I'm, I'm describing things that don't encapsulate all of what you see. There's an instinct. There's a, uh, it's almost like a muscle kinesiology. Like you just know it's, it's like this tests high. I can tell this person is on target in this respect of their fitting. And, and so you get more nuance about that, but then later you learn the why it's like, okay, now I understand right. why the hamstring interferes with the quadricep during certain moments of pedaling when things are off balance. It's, and, it's funny that a lot of people who, who ride with me, yeah. it, it's, they get, you know, uh, I see things and they'll, they'll be like, you know, people will say, Oh, what are you seeing there when you're looking at that? And I'm like, well, we see how this is happening and this is happening. Cause mm-hmm. I sort of don't, I, I guess I, I won't say it's a gift, but I see stuff. Right. Yeah, and, and it's not like I'm super smart. I'm just like you know, I'm just some guy in the pub. Mm. And, and but when I point it out to other people, they can't unsee it even now. Yep. And, and yep. they're like, it's a curse now. Every time I go out riding, <laughs> I see these things that you pointed out to me that other people are doing. And, and I can't and I can't stop seeing them. And I'm like, yeah, now you know how I feel every time right. I go out in the road. And it's reassuring from a <laughs> from a practitioner's standpoint that mm-hmm. every time I go out in the road, I see so many people who are peddling poorly or in bad positions that I know I still have work to do. Right. It, I I mean, same thing. You go to the supermarket and watch people walk. And yeah, yeah, totally. It, Starbucks, I mean, Starbucks experiment, you know, yeah. go and sit at Starbucks and watch people wait in line for coffee. Oh, we'll go by. It's, um, I love it. Uh, there's a certain elegance to that that I enjoy. Um, and then the deconstructing and the figuring out the why is so interesting, but Watching so, humans is endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Well, so that brings us to the second part of our discussion. So we talked a little bit about peddling, but obviously we can unpack that for another three hours. Um, <laughs> but it brings us to the second part of the discussion, which you and I originally talked about, is you talk about you see it and it looks smooth. And mm-hmm. then the flip side of that coin is the professional cyclists. And where we see a position mm-hmm. that a professional cyclist is in, Mm-hmm. And it makes no sense to us as professionals, as sorry, as as positioning professionals. Yeah. But you can't ignore what it is that the person is doing, right? And it's one of the things I say that professionals are usually professional in spite of themselves. Yeah. Um, because yeah. It, they, that's what makes them a physiological freak. And obviously, the big one which jumps into you know front of front of mind for me is adam hansen um Mm. if you look at his position on a bike it makes zero sense 
And anybody who's watching, you can look up pictures of Adam Hansen's bike in which he has a a normal seat post reversed, so it's facing forward. He has a downward sloping saddle. He has 38-centimeter bars, and I believe Adam's like 6'2", maybe 6'3". He yeah. has um, a minus 17-degree, 140-millimeter stem slammed. Yeah. So he has a total, I think, of a of fourteen centimeters of of saddle bar drop. But he is also has the record for the most continuous grand pro tour. tours finished. Right, um, <laughs> it's grand tours finished. Yeah, and yeah. and he sits on the front of the peloton, you know, sitting at, at high three hundreds all day long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then we see that, and it just makes no sense to us. So, and that's I think very confusing for a lot of consumer amateur cyclists. Yeah. Is that they're just like, well, this guy, yep. you know, how, how do we unpack that, that proposition? Mm-hmm. Or um, recently I heard a podcast with a guy, a bike fitter out of the UK, Phil Burt. Uh-huh. And he worked for Sky for a long yep. time when they were Sky. And and he also uses the example of Geraint Thomas. Same thing. He basically says like, look, there are some people, this is what Steve would call a super high level compensator. Mm-hmm. Adam is unquestionably in this category by definition. Uh, and this is this is really confusing for for the amateur cyclists. They see Geraint Thomas, they see Adam Hansen, and what they don't recognize, I think, is that Geraint Thomas and Adam Hansen are David Goggins. They are Jocko Willink. What do I mean by that? If you don't yeah. know who David Goggins is, go forth and make the search engine. You'll find out instantly. But these people are the they're elite, even by Olympic and world level standards. They are the absolute freaks of humanity who you could make, I mean, Phil Burt said this, he's like, you could make Geraint Thomas ride a tricycle and he would still win pro races. Yeah. Yeah. And you could put him on anything and he'll adapt. And you can see that clearly in Geraint's career because in when he was in the earlier days uh, with the GB team pursuit team, he wrote a very traditional position that I would have been quite happy with, you know, somewhat mm-hmm. little saddle offset uh, torso supported by the saddle you know, uh, more hip flexion, but not excessively. So not like Boardman style, but making really good power, winning team pursuit world championships and Olympic medals, right. Um, winning, winning races at the elite level and world championship level. Then he progresses and they decide he's become a stage racer. And all of a sudden they slam his saddle super far forward and everything gets crazy. And he's looks like he's a, you know, a monkey hop at a football kind of, but he still looks smooth. He doesn't lose right. his plus in his power, but he's still successful at that discipline. Now he's got the world's best team or one of them behind him, dragging him to the line. All he has to do is go fast for 38 minutes up the final climb. I'm not trivializing Durant's job at all. Don't get me wrong. What he does is amazing. But the confounding variable here is that people see these athletes and they assume several things. And these are all false assumptions about pro cyclists. One is that when Adam Hansen or Durant or any other pro rider who's at the top level is at doing their job, they're being paid to ride their bike and they're winning grand tour stages that they are in an optimal position. And this is not true. It's just, mm-hmm. not. and there are a bunch of reasons why this is not the case. And people who don't really understand pro cycling in the inside, it's easy to, to get confused on that. You assume that someone's at the highest level of the sport and they're going to be the expression of their own athletic perfection. They must be by definition. That's actually well, commonly not the case. So that's really interesting. So if, if we can sp- compare sports, so if you take someone like, you know, you watch Chris Froome ride a bike, not pretty, mm-hmm. but fast. <laughs> um, 
right? You watch you watch Vincenzo Nibali ride a bike, pretty and fast. Yes, it's, yeah, yeah sim- similar things. And cycling is really unique where you can have both. But if you go to a sport like figure skating, there's no not pretty at the elite level of figure skating. Good point. Um, there's no not pretty at the elite level of gymnastics. Right, because those sports are by definition aesthetic. And and highly technical. Yes. And, and self-limiting. Yes. Um, and so that's an, another, going back to our earlier comment, that's a great expression of how amazing the bicycle is at, at taking mm-hmm. taking yeah. lemons and giving us lemonade. That's a that's a really excellent point you make, Greg. Um, you're 100 percent right. And there are probably other sports where the pretty depends not at all, right? Uh, boxing, right? Right. Well, it's fighting. Like, golf's a great example as well. You know, you don't have to look pretty to hit the ball a long way. No. But then you have the Tiger Woods who revolutionized the sport, arguably, by training the whole body and not just drinking beer right. and having a belly or whatever, you know? Um, Smoking. So, so, and look at the success Tiger had. There's different ways to skin a cat depending on the sport. But, but there's some sports where aesthetics right. drive everything. And cycling is a sport that falls arguably in the middle, maybe more towards the aesthetic respect in some regards. Because you can't be a complete train wreck you can't be a total blunt force instrument and pedal at 130 rpms in the saddle at you know uh, 120 percent of your threshold for very long without going to pieces or injuring right, right. so there are some demands of the sport that are that will force you into a certain hole when you get to the highest end or will force your your functional card we'll say whereas ufc you know, or, or wrestling, um, Greco Roman wrestling, for example, uh, those are sports that are, that are, yes, of course they're technical and they have to perform certain actions with technical proficiency, but you could also be fundamentally a blunt force instrument and have very high level success in that sport. Boxing, you've got, you know, float like a butterfly sting, like a bee, you Mm -hmm. can have both sides of that. You can have wrestlers and, um, you can have boxers and, and movement, people who move fluidly and move well. You can have people with kettlebell uh, world championships who who have certain style, a clean style. You can have mm. other people who are just getting a thing in the air. <laughs> so, so there's that spectrum. That's a great way to think about that spectrum of where our sport lies. And, and so there are athletes who can have even success at the world level in cycling who really have pretty atrocious style. I mean – not to pick on anybody, but the the best example of that outstanding example is Tommy Vokler. Like mm, I think yeah. online quote once is like, every time I see Thomas Vokler out of the saddle, a little part of my soul dies. <laughs> I mean, there are athletes that just murder the pedals and still right. win court of front stages or maybe well wear the yellow jersey. That doesn't yep. make them examples we're striving for. Sure. Yeah. Nor does it mean that function doesn't apply to cyclists and when and we always have the problem of the amateur cyclist looking at someone like David Goggins or Adam Hansen, bless his soul, uh, and saying, "Well, if Adam Hansen could do this, I can do it. I'm going to slam my saddle forward and ride a ridiculously drop stem and do these super narrow bars." And and this is part of the problem. I spoke about this with my podcast with Travis Brown. He pointed out that what we think about, he's a mountain biker, and what what we think about is we select a bike sometimes that. Um, is really tailored for the 0.5% of our right. six hour training ride. 
I'm just telling you, the SL7, the new Specialized SL7, it wasn't designed for me. Right. No right. input. Um, yep. so, so the chance of me riding that bike optimally are relatively low. But that's what we're thinking about when we're on the showroom floor of the, of the bike shop. We see that racy, sexy thing with all the integrated cables, and we're going, man, when I go to you know, win the, the, coffee shop. the Tuesday World's group ride, this thing's going to crush everybody. But then I have to deal with it on all the gravel rides I rode and did seven hours extra maintenance every month to get the cables done and whatever else we're not thinking about or the, the right. fact that I, I'm not flexible enough to get in that position because the bars are so low on this bike and I, right. the gear's already cut. I can't raise it enough. I just, I just had one recently and I was discussing with another uh, rider positioning person and they were talking about somebody coming back in after a bike fit and telling them that everything is beautiful and he feels really good on the bike and nothing else is hurting, but he needs the bike changed so he can race crits on it. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure what that means. Like what, what's the difference? What's, you know, people say, well, because crits require you to get out of the saddle all the time and sprint, it needs a longer, lower stem on it. To, I'm like, no, that's just going to destroy your handling. That's right. going to make that bike just a nightmare in and out of corners. And one thing, you know, you'll appreciate is, is the clever old guys. Um, if you, if you can figure out how to go through corners fast, you can save a ton of energy yeah. and you can, and you can put bike lengths on people in and out of corners. Yes. And, and so your handling and your balance point on your bike are so critical to you being more efficient. Mm. And it's and about having to, you know, we, it's all about how you use your resources, right? So if I can zip into a corner and come out four bike lengths ahead of you without having to put in a pedal stroke because I'm, you know, I know how to apex a corner and my bike handles like a dream and I can lean it. Yep. Um, yeah, that's a great thing. But yeah, I, I want I want the bike setup changed so I can race crits on it. <laughs> so I just had this conversation uh, during a fit yesterday with my client. This is kind of how I describe the importance of handling and bike fit. It's it's really easy as fitters to be focused on the function of the rider and improving their functional threshold power. Threshold, threshold, threshold. Stop. Stop at the freaking threshold, people. <laughs> so like that's how I describe it. it. Look, you know, for me, fundamentally, bicycle fit is about balancing the physiology of the rider with the demands of their event. So how does the rider hip hinge? How do they lunge? How stable are they versus what are they trying to accomplish? Are they trying to win state time trial championships or are they nice. trying to win uh, their age group at, at unbound gravel, you know, a nine hour gravel race or 12 or whatever it is, depending on what, what the length you sign up for. And there are different demands for those events. So that's fine. We have to, then we do a movement screen. We figure out where the rider is and we look at their, their, where they fall in the category. And then we educate them about how to get closer to the demands of what they want to do and the limitations of their own physiology based on that. But, um, wait, I just completely forgot my train of thought. I had a point. Sorry. Remind me where Bal we were. Balancing and handling on the bike. Thank you. Thank you. So, so how I describe it is Okay, let's, I always find a rider, you know, their local descent, whatever that is. Uh, here we have a local descent, uh, a climb called Flagstaff Mountain that was in the Pro Challenge a bunch of times. And that's a super technical, twisty descent. It takes you about a half hour to get up the thing for most people that are pretty good, you know, 23 minutes if you're Lachlan Morton or Seth Poos. And when you go down that thing, there are multiple hairpins and whatever. So it's a very technical descent. I say, okay, let's pretend that we're descending down Flagstaff Mountain and this is your fastest possible descent speed. I mean, like 
you're being chased by a pack of cheetahs, right? <laughs> like you're barely on the edge of survival. And let's say on your average day that you're at 60% of cheetah speed. Okay. So that's fine. 60% of cheetah speed is where on any given day, you as a rider might feel that you're having fun, you're going fast, you're cornering, but you're also well aware of safety, right? You're not on the edge. There's no, there's not $10,000 at the bottom of the hill for you. If you go a little bit faster, you're not trying to race anyone down or impress your buddies. You're not trying to get a Strava downhill KOM or QOM, which Anyway. A downhill, um, yeah. Being chased by a flock of Stravas is probably worse than being chased by a <laughs> well said. You're right. So a flock of Stravas, yeah, being chased by social media on the way down, you know, drive you to, to go off the edge of the cliff. So if we're at 60% of that, my, one of my goals as a fitter is to change that gap, lower that gap, but maintain 100 percent of the safety, right? Right. No compromise in safety. So how do we accomplish that? Well, education of the rider about proper cornering technique and descending technique, mechanically making sure the bike is set up. So the weight balance point is set up properly over the bottom bracket and the wheelbase, right? right? Make sure the bar angle is set in the drop so that they can reach the levers and so that we have a neutral wrist and even pressure across the palm proprioceptively so they can drive through the inside bar and lean that bike. Educate Mm -hmm. about the relationship between body angle and bike lean angle and how those should be parallel or not parallel in various situations um, and all those nuances and then making sure the rider, then educating the rider on what they should feel in terms of sensations during that descent and then asking them for feedback. If we are telling our riders that when they walk out the door, their fit is 100% dialed and that's the end of the story, cut and drive forever. We're selling them short and we're also promising a rainbow. That's not what happens in bike fit. There are certain aspects of bike fit that I feel very confident Look, I want your saddle height here, plus or minus two or three mils, a chamois, right. thick socks, whatever, you know, uh, whether you stretched or didn't, that's fine. But handling, especially in particular on, say, a gravel bike or a mountain bike, mm-hmm. handling can be a process where I send the rider out the door and I say, okay, this is a starting point for your bar height, your saddle bar drop. What I want you to do is go on the trail and try multiple descents and try a slightly wider or narrow hand position take a spacer and put it on top or on bottom and feel the difference. I give them homework. I but, do. but that's part of the, that's part of the thing. I think a lot of people, and this is partly driven by the elite level of, you know, what bike fit was about because bike fit is about optimizing your performance and performance, you know, in a lot of people's head is threshold, threshold, threshold. Yes. Whereas performance is really I, I, one of the elements I think people overlook with bike fit is safety. You you need to be able to operate the bike safely. The number of people I have come in who are like, oh, no, I can't ride a bike, no hands. And I'm like, well, something's not right. Chances are your bike position's not good. No, no, my bike position's perfect. I'm Mm. like, okay, well, something's not right. So, and maybe we can change things because safety and operating the bicycle in the most, in the safest way is that the bicycle should be an expression of your thought process as far as, you know, I shouldn't have to wrestle my bike. You know, that go back to what I say a lot. People, people talk about riding a bike. Well, we also ride bulls and horses, in which case the animal is in charge. We actually right. drive a car because we're holding the steering wheel and we're controlling the power, and that's the way we should operate a bicycle. We should drive a bicycle. Mm-hmm. 
And, and safety is just critical. You see so many people like white knuckling, knuckling it, um, yeah. going down hills where you should, you know, it's hitting that flow state, right? That's just that perfect balance point on your bike. But I also think people are scared and maybe we've created this ourselves as, as, as bike fitters, right? Your positioning specialists, mm-hmm. that people are scared to change their position. Mm. They're like, oh, yeah, this is the way he said it should be. I'm like, no, no, you can feel free to, to move it five millimeters on the bars. Feel free to change the bar rotation maybe a little bit. As, as you know, as a high-level athlete, the key of being a high-level athlete is I don't have to go out and compete for you as your coach. Right. Right. I, I give you, you know, I teach a man to fish, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think a lot of people come to and they almost like hand off the responsibility to the bike fitter mm-hmm. that, you know, and once yeah. you've set the position, they're like, oh, don't touch, don't touch his position. And they're almost, maybe they're just too scared to come back or, or have that feedback. Maybe we've created this environment ourselves. Well, I think there are two components to that. One is I think there's sort of an unwritten belief that in um, the world of bike fitting, there's sort of an ideal or a perfect position for each rider and that the only the fitter knows what that is. (laughs) The reality is like, I don't know your body, you know, as well as you do. Right. Not as well as you do. I try to learn about your body. I learn about your injury history. I look at how you move. I look at your uh, movement patterns, your asymmetries, your limits and, you know, range of motion or flexibility. I look at a little bit of strength. And I talk to you about what type of rider you are. So I understand your phenotype a bit. I understand hopefully, you know, how you interact with your environment and what your race goals are and all those things give me information, but I'm never going to have the experience you have when you ride up the mountain. I'm never going to be able to feel your back pain or your knee pain or your discomfort or your feeling of fuzziness in your feet or, or lack of perceptive clarity when you grab the bars or whatever it is that you're feeling. So so ultimately, you are the expert on your body. My job is to educate you about what's relevant and what isn't, what's noise and what's useful signal, and mm-hmm. what helps us interpret what isn't working about your bike fit versus what is just random thoughts going through your monkey mind, which we all have. Right. And, and interpreting that data to, to really um, help you refine and find that more optimal cross-section of you and how you relate to this amazing intricate machine this bicycle this this symmetrical beast that we want that takes us so many places and uh, allows us to connect both inwardly with ourself and find our own limits and our own sensations and reinforce that connection with self but also go places see nature see birds uh go fast up mountains go set strava times whatever your goal is go win the bike race yeah. Yeah, I think that's the that's the thing. We're we're here as a you know, we're here as a bridge and applying our thousands of hours of knowledge to and it's like I, I say to a lot of people as a coach, I'm mm-hmm. a tour guide to a place that you know about but don't intimately understand. Mm-hmm. I, I I know all the I know all the back alleys. I know the best place to get coffee. I know where the best Piadina is. I know, you know. So my my job is to guide you, and along the way we'll learn things together. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, taking advantage of our our knowledge is, I think, the critical thing. As as you know, bike fitters, rider positioning specialists, and coaches is yeah. just like tying all that stuff together. Yeah, yeah, and, so, and that relates back to our conversation about kind of seeing the athlete and almost just seeing the things are balanced and and 
ineffably having an intuitive understanding like this rider is now better situated on their bike to to have that flow state and that balance between making power and being cerebral and also having intuition when they go to do their event and um the term that i've encountered and begun to kind of rehearse in my own mind when it comes to that is simply being what's known in the shamanic world as the hollow bone right meaning Mm -hmm. as a coach as a fitter there's a point when you almost step out of the way and let your instinct or your intuition guide you like you were saying greg like i you said uh something earlier about kind of almost getting out of the way and letting the instinct the intuition come to you when you see someone not Mm -hmm. too cerebral and too mechanical about it. And there's a blend there. There's a balance and all those things. Um, And uh, Ben Serrata wrote a really good article in bicycling a few years ago about how he kind of steps into that, that process of making the perfect frame. Right. And it's a balance of the, the cutting of the tubes and the brazing and the filing of the lugs and the mechanical aspect of getting everything technically perfect balancing that with the flow of this perfect outcome. And he even talked about, I've thought of this several times, um, almost every fit since I read that article, he talks about how many times he makes little mistakes. He sort of counts them. Mm. And for me, how many times during a a four hour bike fit, do I drop a tool, (laughs) right? Or a bolt assemble when I'm changing a bolt. And that's a, and, and so I'm just observing, you know, it's not judgment. It's not like, there's no like, oh, I dropped a tool, you know, I'm off track or I lost the flow. It's not like that. It's, it's I'm not a surgeon. Exactly. Yeah. I dropped a stem bolt inside your open chest cavity. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, but like, it, it's not about that, but it's, but it is about being attentive to every detail and having your tools be laid out so that you are less distracted by looking for that Torx key or whatever so that you can apply as much of your attention and focus in the present moment and being occupied. What does the rider need? What is the next priority? How am I refining and zooming into that ideal outcome for today's work? What, what it's, it's constant requirement or it's a constant refreshing of my own mental browser. What does the rider need? Right. My, that's one of my basic MOs. So yeah. when you, when you're on track and when you're, when you are the hollow bone, you're it, that answer just comes to you. You just see it. It's not like a, a you don't have to ask yourself 15 times. You know, you're just paying attention. It's like, Oh, we need to climb off the bike for a moment and talk about core to use right. that word again or whatever. Say it again. Yeah. 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 I think it's uh yeah. I mean, once again, more, more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that's that's part of the process and i guess that's what gets you and i up in the morning and a number of other of our colleagues is that it's a it's a you know it's all about the journey not the destination agreed and well agreed. mate we've gone around that we've gone around the clock <laughs> again and i i've got to say i really am enjoying these conversations that you and i are having and with other fit professionals like that because these are the discussions which need to be had mm. Um, and this is how we progress the craft forward. And this is how we sort of demystify stuff. Um, yeah. And I appreciate your time coming on board. I've got to head off to the studio now to, to do some work um, okay. actually with people on, on actual bikes. Cause you know, yeah. I'm not just a guy on the internet. I'm actually a guy who does real work at the coalface as are you Great. coaching out there, working with athletes, putting your hands on people's bikes. Yep. Um, yep. And I, I, I think that's really important. So, 
Um, thank you once again. If people who are watching, if there's other topics which you're interested in and hearing us you know, ruminate on, um, please yeah. feel free to make a comment below. We're always looking for, we want to give people what they want. We want to share our knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, you know, uh, from the Chris Bolzer podcast, which you did on cycling and alignment with Colby Pierce, Chris, as he, he said, um, he's been pestering me for a while to put something together, which he hinted at to you. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great opportunity for us maybe to work together some more Colby is to start looking at ways we can put together some exercise mobility and strength stuff for people in the cycling and the triathlon, the running world, which, which could benefit, benefit people. So maybe that's something else we can work on and circle back next time. That sounds great. I would really like to be part of that project and you guys are, um, I would really appreciate the the opportunity to work with you and, and Chris because you guys have such a wealth of expertise. Um, it'd be awesome, super high energy collaborative project. Uh, we're we're all we're all some of the uh, the company we keep, Colby. So you're certainly up there um, with us. We appreciate your input to our community as well. Thank you, thank you. Great. Attention, space monkeys! Public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet, which again is self-evident. Gratitude.